Broadcasting from the Cradle of Liberty in Philadelphia. All the way to the rhythm and blues of Beale Street in Memphis. To high atop the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. This is where politically correct perception meets common sense. This is the Joe Carey Show. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe Carey. Very happy to have uh, what I consider kind of a combination of the original Wonder Woman slash um, Captain Marvel and and uh, Suzanne. There's probably a couple of other uh, monikers that you could you could wear. But Suzanne Sherman is joining me. How are you today? I'm doing great. I have to laugh at your um, analogy there. I just saw a picture of a Wonder Woman with a Wonder Bread kind of outfit on and a whip. It said Wonder Woman or <laughs> <laughs> Miracle Whip. <laughs> well, now, see, I I look at I look at uh, not only uh, not only the, the the principled stances that you take on various issues, and I do follow you because uh, Suzanne is a regular columnist. She is a regular uh, talk show host herself. But uh, you you are kind of into the, the being prepared and um, having skills to survive, you know, unforeseen circumstances, which I think that's that's pretty smart stuff. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I do try to combine preparedness with a proper understanding of the proper role in government and our constitutional system and where we've gone astray. And even people that call themselves constitutionalists don't really understand what that means. And under the auspices of constitutionalism, put forth ideas and policies that were repugnant to the Constitution, in fact. So I kind of, I, I try and say, look, it depends on which America you're talking about. Are you talking about the uh, 1776? to 1861 America, or are you talking about the post-Lincolnian America? Because that is how you're going to have to frame your arguments. And if you're doing the latter, please don't use the Constitution as your, uh, as your authority. Oh, there's, there's a whole discussion waiting just, just on that alone. We have a number of different topics we want to cover. I know that uh, earlier this morning on, on my own show, Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde, I was talking about uh, an article from Kerry McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education about uh, six myths that you have to be willing to shed if you want to unschool yourself. And, and there was one of those apparently that, that kind of struck a nerve with you. Tell me about it. Well, it didn't strike a nerve. It just really resonated because uh, we, as we know, through our mutual friend, uh, jo- just. Justin Spears, he also introduced me to Carrie, and I know that you guys all had a powwow at Fee. I was really jealous to miss out on that one. But I I pulled my kids out of school. I raised two boys, and when one was in junior kindergarten and the other was in second grade, I took them out. And you really have to have a lot of faith in yourself to get away from not only the school system, even if it's a private school system, but the curriculum itself. De-schooling, unschooling was a... We ended up doing that. I started out in a K-12 public charter homeschool curriculum. We got away from that. And before we even started, I heard that you should take one month of doing absolutely nothing related to school for every year they've been in. So we took a few months off and just had a great time. And my boys now are 18 and 20. We never registered. Now that they're both the age of majority, I can be honest about that. But trust yourself, trust your ability, trust your children's desire to learn. I mean, my Google when I was in school was my world book and encyclopedia set. School with me felt like I was in a cage. Once I was done with my homework, the real learning could begin. Beautiful. 
And that's, you know, for those who haven't seen the article, if you go to the Foundation for Economic Education website, fee.org, you'll find it. They actually have a number of different categories, education being one of them. It's right there at the top of the list. Definitely worth checking out. Now, speaking of education. In my efforts to uh, to try to, to stay a little bit better informed about the world around us and what's going on, I like to uh, access a number of different sources. Suzanne, you are one of those sources because you tackle these subjects not from a partisan approach, which unfortunately is the path of least resistance for a lot, but you, you take them on from a principled approach. I'd like to talk with you about uh, your recent article on the uh, 10th Amendment Center about the Supreme Court simultaneously trampling state sovereignty and the Fourth Amendment at the same time. Yeah, this was a case that was just just came out. Let me find this here. And it was uh, about DUI cases. And it was a tough one for me to write because, as you know, there is a lot of emotionalism tied up in drunk driving. We have mad out there and the deaths, even the rhetoric that the, that the court justices engaged in was just ad hominem. And I get into that. There was a case in, it was called Mitchell versus Wisconsin. And the court here had to decide what police officers can do when a person is suspected of driving under the influence and they're unconscious and can't be given a breath test. Now, this should really resonate with people in Utah, because as we know, at the U, we had a case that just went on national news about was Nurse Webble, who followed procedures and prevented an officer from doing a warrantless search on an unconscious patient. And he wasn't suspected of DUI, but I had my suspicions of the officer's intention for drawing the blood. We don't need to get into that here. But to get back to this case, we had an individual who was observed behaving erratically and neighbors reported him when he drove off and he was found near Lake Michigan where he had consumed vodka and I believe some painkillers. After he was administered a preliminary breath test, he had a blood alcohol content of 0.24, which is three times over the legal limit there. So he was transported to a police station to use uh, an additional, more reliable breath test for purposes of using uh, uh, it as evidence against him in court. And as he lost consciousness en route, they wheeled him into the station. They couldn't do the breast the breath test. So they transported him to a hospital. And after reading him while he was unconscious, the opportunity to withdraw consent from the test, he had the the, the police officers had the hospital without consent or warrant do a blood draw. So the issue before the court became, is this is this to be allowed? And the Supreme Court said it's okay. They said it's okay. The dissent the is this is now this is what happens when you go about looking at things through politics through parties and it's opposed to principles and looking at the people Ginsburg Sotomayor and Kagan were in the dissent and I had expressed that I had agreed with the dissent and I say and when somebody saw the three that I sided with they said well you need to do a little <laughs> bit more research and I said well let me tell you something I, I am an attorney I practice criminal defense and I've spent a lot of time researching these very cases so I already have done my research and I was accused of waiving my credentials so I can be accused <laughs> of not having done my research when clearly I have but we're so blinded by who's putting forth these opinions, we throw away our principles. And when that happens, then ultimately we're all going to be less free. 
So what was the rationale behind the Supreme Court upholding this practice of drawing blood from unconscious people if there's a you know suspicion of DUI? Well, this one's going to blow your mind. It was safety. Mm. <laughs> it was highway safety. And uh, the, let me scroll down and see if I can find what they said here. They said... Um, that they use language like the, the, the deaths on the highway were comparable to the ravages of war, which is really, you know, ad hominem, at least, and disingenuous, you know, at, at worst. So we really have to think of what was motivating them. And they cited previous cases. Again, you have to understand what isn't delegated, what was not delegated to the general government remained with the states. It also goes to say that simply because the general government has not been delegated this power, you have to understand the Supreme Court can't rule on it either, because what they're doing is going around what was rejected at Philadelphia, which was what Madison proposed as a veto over state laws vis-a-vis the legislature. But they're doing that by, you know, what they couldn't do via legislatively, they're doing judicially by uh, Supreme Court fiat in a sense. So that was, again, repudiated. It was turned down at the Philadelphia Convention. And if you read the book, um, what was it called, by Raoul Berger, Government by Judiciary, also our good friend Dave Benner wrote one. He's actually a co-author of this article, that uh, the 14th Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine. So how do we get the federal court reviewing local police actions? And that's, once again, we can thank the 14th Amendment. And we'll, Go ahead. No, so we can thank the 14th Amendment for that. I, I'm just, I'm letting you know, we, we've got about a minute before we have to go to break, but um, when we come back from the break, Suzanne, I want to, to take a few minutes and have you walk us through the, the history of the, the Fourth Amendment. Uh, what's, what was the legal thinking, the legal precedent that led up to the way that the Fourth Amendment was written? Why does it say what it says? What was it intended to do? Um, just to help illustrate how what the Supreme Court decided in this case is, is such a departure from what are supposed to be safeguards for the people against uh, government power being used either unreasonably or, or excessively. I'm so glad we're going to cover that because a lot of people just completely skip the history and go by the emotions and the intention to keep our highways safe at the expense of our liberty, which really should take priority. Okay, we'll take a real quick break. This is The Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. Suzanne Sherman is joining me today. You can check her out online at SuzanneCSherman.com. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. Suzanne Sherman joins me today. And uh, Suzanne, we're talking about a recent Supreme Court case out of uh, a a matter that arose in Wisconsin, drawing the blood of an unconscious patient to to, uh, do a blood alcohol level check. Uh, The Supreme Court upheld the practice. And uh, you make a very strong case. And and I forget, what was the name of your co-author for this article on the Tenth Amendment Center's website? 
Dave Benner, and he is an author of a book called Compact of the Republic and also the 14th Amendment and the Incorporation Doctrine. Fabulous historian, historian I beg your pardon, DaveBenner.com. Okay, you, you both make a very powerful case that uh, this decision, notwithstanding it coming from, you know, the black-robed priesthood of our nation, um, apparently is, is in direct contrast and, and direct opposition to the Fourth Amendment. And let's talk a little bit about the history of that amendment so people know we're, just, we're not just waving around that Fourth Amendment as if it's a, a trump card, but what's the thinking and the reasoning behind the Fourth Amendment and its protections? Just a quick backup here. <clears throat> the state of Wisconsin actually um, abandoned what the original premise was, or they, they didn't, they, sorry, they have what they call implied consent laws. Many of the states have them. So if you're driving on the road and you're suspected of driving under the influence, you must consent to either blood or alcohol, blood or, or um, urine, breath test, or you will sus- be suspended uh, with your license. You won't get criminally punished, but you'll be punished civilly. The Supreme Court decided to ignore implied consent and and instead focus on the Fourth Amendment. And so we decided to do a little bit of history into what the Fourth Amendment, how it came about. And as Dave Benner, this was his contribution here. The Fourth Amendment had British precedent and was largely the result of Americans' reaction to what we called writs of assistance. And what they were, unlike genuine uh, genuine search warrants, there was little higher scrutiny that had to be approved by a judge. They were also, uh, did not have an end time. They did not expire. They did didn't require an itemized list of items to be seized. Under these general writs, the customs officials were given complete arbitrary uh, discretionary freedom to enter any of these, uh, anybody's private property at will. This is like what we call the the banging on the door in the middle of the night hypothesis that people discuss all the time. So these two factors made the writs especially contemptible, and they roused the indignation of those who believed that traditional liberty was going to be rooted in the inviability of property rights. James uh, Otis of Massachusetts argued against these cases, and although he... Although he lost in that case, a young John Adams was so moved by his persuasive power, he wrote the American independence was then and there born. And by all accounts, Otis's condemnation of the Ritz left a lasting impression that wove itself, uh, what Dave says, into the tapestry of American liberty. This went uh, as repeated in the Virginia Declaration of of Rights, uh, as well as Massachusetts. They adopted a Declaration of Rights that required all searches to be reasonable. I love it. But why don't we recognize this today? Maybe this goes back to the whole schooling thing we were talking about earlier. Again, I I think that we're more moved by concepts of security. And even if you are motivated and more concerned with security and safety on on the highways, again, we know that drunken driving is a problem. It causes a lot of deaths. We really have to turn back to to be consistent if we want to have the government to which the states consented. We have to look to, is this the proper forum to address these issues? Again, we went to war to have a representative form of government and escape a system of parliamentary sovereignty. If we're looking towards nine unelected, unaccountable, politically connected lawyers 
to determine what the law of the land is going to be in 300 for 320 or 350, however million people we have here, we're completely abandoning that whole premise altogether. So now we have to turn to how did we ever get this way when they were never intended to determine local police procedures among the states? So we can thank the 14th Amendment for opening the door to federal interference in matters that were never intended nor consented to by the states. And that's actually the the next place I wanted to go is what does this say about the state of Wisconsin? Aren't the states supposed to protect their sovereignty, that that rightful sphere in which they have power to to exercise and to to do day to day governance? What does it say when the Supreme Court, when, when they run to the Supreme Court and say, here, you, you decide this? It's yet another example of the states surrendering their own sovereignty. The proper question should have been, what is the state of Wisconsin, meaning our own constitution? And yes, the states have their own. The states' constitutions of the states that were in existence before the constitution was even brought up, they had their own constitutions. They predated the federal constitution and in matters never delegated to the latter. Theirs are the ones that are, are supposed to be supreme. Well, I know this this causes a bit of heartburn for some people the first time they really contemplate it. But you're making the case here that the Bill of Rights, which most of us love and cherish, was not intended to be binding upon the states themselves, was it? It wasn't. And we are absolutely I will tell you all through law school, we never discussed incorporation as something that should even be questioned. We're taught in in our early education when we first talk about government, we have that little triangle, you know, with the arrows going back and forth of the three branches of government and the checks and balances, but completely ignored in these discussions and lessons are the ultimate arbiters in the system of keeping the government checked, and that was the states. And we don't hear about that. The preamble to the Bill of Rights... um, even says that the conventions of the number of the states in in relevant part here expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added. They wanted to promote confidence in the public that the government was not going to exceed the limitations that were pressed upon it. Okay, so I'll throw this hypothetical out there because I know someone is likely thinking this. But Suzanne, they might be thinking... If we left the states to to handle these matters mostly on their own, how could we be sure that justice would prevail? In other words, there has to be a one-size-fits-all remedy at some level, doesn't there? Well, that's exactly when when I was in law school and we're reading through in constitutional law all the cases. And that's, again, why we get the Constitution wrong as lawyers. We study case law, not constitutional history. You always read, due to inconsistency of state opinions, this case is ripe for review. Inconsistency of state opinions, ladies and gentlemen, is the heart of federalism. James Madison said in Federalist 39, we have a federal non a national system put in place. So what does that mean? The national system that he and and Edmund Randolph proposed in Philadelphia was rejected. They wanted a strong central government. Alexander Hamilton also wanted the state subservient, mere subsidiaries to the general government that was being created. And this was rejected. So even Madison said after the fact, okay, we have a federal government, meaning we have a government with limited responsibilities and the adequate resources to carry them out. I love it. 
And 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 I I got to tell you, for a long time, even when when my patriotic blood was you know you know running the fastest through my veins, there was a long time I misunderstood federalism, and I took it to mean well, if it's federal, then it must mean you know our national government. I didn't realize they were talking about a type of system rather than the name of the system. And so connecting those dots has made a lot of things more clear. It's also illustrated we're we're in a lot deeper kimchi than than we once thought. Well, and the two terms are considered synonymous. I like to just for, for giggles, go over to dictionary.com and you look this stuff up and they're also defined as synonyms. Really? Wow. So I guess if we went back to, say, Noah Webster's 1828 edition of the dictionary, we might get a little more accurate representation of what it really meant. Yeah, and we're going to get into that later when we discuss the AR-15. So I know you covered that this morning. Okay, well, let's do that. We will take a quick break. Again, you are listening to The Joe Carey Show. Brian Heights sitting in for Joe. Suzanne Sherman is my guest. And we'll be back after this. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Once again, welcome back to the Joe Carey Show on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. Suzanne Sherman joins me today, and I would really encourage you, strongly suggest, go, go check out her website, SuzanneCSherman.com. She has many, many thought-provoking articles. We are talking about a recent Supreme Court case uh, stemming from a case in Wisconsin in which police drew blood from an unconscious driver suspected of DUI. And let's, we'll, we'll, let's finish up our discussion on this. We've got a couple other topics we want to move on to. What are the takeaways that, uh, that we would like our listeners to, to hang on to from this conversation, Suzanne? I think a main takeaway is what Justice Alito said, who delivered the opinion of the court. He said that we have addressed the circumstances under which an officer may administer a warrant blood uh, alcohol concentration test to a motorist. And what he's doing, again, is dictating local police procedures never delegated to the general government. So they're ruling on those. And what he's admitting here, and this, I think, is really what we need to take away, is that he's admitting the court has amended the Constitution which we know provisions to do so are set forth in Article 5. It can either be proposed by Congress or the states, and then that requires ratification by three-fourths of the states. So what they're saying is every time we get together, we're going to have a constitutional convention and not invite the states to weigh in. Now, again, we went to war to be independent from another uh, entity far away, that was dictating what local standards and taxation would be. And now by surrendering policy matters like this to nine politically connected, unelected, unaccountable justices, we're getting back and coming full circle. And we're saying, you know, the war for independence and self-governance, you know, really didn't matter. Here, here. All right. Let's I'm going to shift gears now. We we've had a couple of gun related topics sitting on the back burner here. Um, I'm going to mention this one first just because it it was kind of a recent one. Um, I know you posted this earlier on Facebook. Um, FBI offering a five thousand dollar reward for the return of a semi-automatic rifle stolen from an agent's car in Oakland. Tell me what's curious about their choice of words in that headline. 
the choice of words I find very problematic because when they have a firearm that falls into the wrong hands or when they own their own firearms that are exactly the same that we have, they're semi-automatics. When they seek to take them away from us, they're called assault rifles. And there's no defensive use. There's no excuse or reason to have an assault rifle. Well, if there's no reason to have them, why does the government have them? An excellent point. And, and, it, and to me, it just illustrates the, the subtlety that 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 cunning um, tweak of of the language that's not intended necessarily to outright lie, but just to slightly misdirect people, you know, to and give them was, warm fuzzies. Yeah, and it wasn't just the headline. The pundit, if you if you listen to the video of there of that story, he does the same thing. It's a semi-auto. They never were. And if you look at the picture, it has all the evil features yep. that would put me in state prison for over a decade for having that firearm, let alone letting it fall into somebody's hands. By the way, a federal agent's firearm was stolen in San Francisco and was used in the killing of Kate Steinle, a famous case that brought up the sanctuary cities issue now when, when people say you know well you know these I, and i'm going to quote the politicians because they're the ones who are saying this the most these weapons of war have no place on our city streets give me a common sense uh, response or at least a, a coherent response that that i might be able to give back when someone says that well you know these are weapons of war they have no place on our streets what would you tell them Believe it or not, I wrote an article on that very topic. It's called Muskets to AR-15s, Weapons of War, Enemies of Tyranny. It's hard to find if you do a search under 10th Amendment Center in my name. Google really hides these. So if you go to my page, SuzanneCSherman.com, they're all listed under my articles. And uh, these were the whole purpose of prohibiting the general government from regulating firearms was to ensure that we would have weapons of war on a par with the government, because this goes back to our militia and how important the militia was for preventing against uh, frontier assaults and also the recognition that personal assaults were uh, were respected and the ability to protect ourselves from them. Nice. And actually, I have that article in front of me. Uh, I will also post this to the show notes in the podcast, which we'll have posted up shortly after you and I are through speaking this afternoon. Um, so if, if somebody wants to go to the podcast, I'll have a link directly to this article as well. You know, we, we also mentioned definitions, quick interjection. And in 1828, the Noah Webster defined a musket as a weapon used, again, it's by colonial militias, as a species of firearms used in war. In other words, it was a once a given that civilians, meaning the militia, would have the very same firearms as the military. Now, if you fast forward to the Merriam-Webster definition of, assault, of an assault rifle, uh, it, it says that it is any of various intermediate-range magazine-fed military rifles that can be set for automatic or semi-automatic. Also, and this is important, a rifle that resembles a military assault rifle but is designed to allow only semi-automatic fire. So now we're afraid of, of, of firearms that have different functionality but just look scary. Yeah, I I see some of the various uh, Democratic candidates who are lining up to to uh, try to get their party's nomination for president next year. Um, they're they're talking pretty tough. 
You know, and, and Eric Swalwell, the one who threatened to nuke gun owners if they don't give up their guns. Well, we have nukes, you know, just reminding you who's in charge. He thankfully has dropped out. But um, worst case scenario, and, and I, I hope this doesn't count as fear mongering, but um, if the Democrats were to unseat Trump, if they were to take the White House, if they were to control both houses of Congress, how likely do you think it is that uh, we would see a full on ban of anything that looked remotely military in nature as far as well, firearms this is the problem with turning a lot of power over to the federal government meaning the national government uh what what power you give them, they will eventually use against you. I, I wrote an article about National Concealed Carry being a Trojan horse. Kamala Harris, those who are, are OK with Donald Trump's executive orders with regards to the bump stocks, for instance. Oh, we don't need them. It's not a big deal. Well, when they get in charge, she said Congress has 100 days to do her bidding where she's going to do it herself via executive order. Let's say we surrendered national, uh, you know, control over national concealed carry permits, making one state recognize the permits of all the others. What do you think the likelihood of her saying in the interest of public safety, I am going to hereby revoke via executive order all concealed carry permits? The woman's insane. A lot of these people in Congress right now are insane. Do you really think that they wouldn't consider doing this? Well, and you you raise, I think, the, the valid point here of if you give them the power, you're, you're handing over a, a portion of your sovereignty, a portion of your own decision making that uh, they're not going to give back. Yeah. And the problem is, too, is we we interpret cases that have been disasters for our pre-existing right to own a firearm. I'd also tell people there's no such thing as a Second Amendment right. Famous case, Heller versus Washington, D.C., where Antonin Scalia defined the Second Amendment as applying to handguns not connected with use in the militia. And gun rights advocates were cheering this on. And after reading that opinion, I thought, this is not a vindication for gun rights. It's an unmitigated disaster. And people don't understand that because what he's done is left the door open for guns that are not handguns to be banned. And we've seen that with regards to the proposed bans. We already had a ban on assault weapons, the so-called assault weapons. So by limiting what guns are protected, we fall into the trap of saying we have these Second Amendment rights as opposed to understanding the Second Amendment as an out-and-out prohibition from the general government regulating firearms at all, good or bad. Well, you had mentioned earlier on in our discussion how you know words or, or the common understanding of words can sometimes be used to, uh, to shift the public's understanding. If there is a word that has been twisted into something evil and dark, it's the word militia. Should we fear that word? You know, it's funny you say that. Do you remember there was a case, I don't know, 10 or 15 years back where it went viral on every news outlet? A white Christian militia had been uh, discovered as starting to they were planning to bomb, set off bombs at police officers, funerals. I mean, you couldn't get any more ad hominem and emotional than that. Turned out they had confidential informants involved and all case all all of the charges were dismissed against the accused members. But you never heard about that in the news. Was this, uh, I'm trying to remember if I'm saying it right, the Hutter, Hattari or Huttery militia? I, 
I don't remember. I just remember there was absolute crickets when when the charges were dismissed. And what did Carl Rove say? You know, once you get that bell rung in the public, you know, that public alarm, you're not going to unring it. What what sticks is the fear of militias and the 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 notion that those that seek to constitutional principles of limited government are somehow extremists. Wow. Excellent explanation. Suzanne Sherman is my guest. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe Carey. This is The Joe Carey Show. Welcome back to The Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. Today I'm talking with Suzanne Sherman. And I would encourage you to go to her website, SuzanneCSherman.com, where you will find a lot of great information because I take it you're listening to this program because it matters. Getting things right or at least having a better, more complete understanding matters. You're not content to just go around chanting bumper sticker slogans. And that's good. Suzanne, you had mentioned national reciprocity for concealed carry. And I know that's something that gets the hopes up for a lot of gun owners. And at one time it would have done so for me, too. But you also mentioned that it's it's kind of a Trojan horse. How is that? Well, like a lot of times when the government seeks to issue us freedoms that they deem us worthy of having, what comes attached to that are certain strings that if you don't play by the rules just exactly in the right way, you're going to be caught up in a, in a fishnet and, and, sus- and subject to criminal penalties. And I really realized, first of all, not only is this blatantly unconstitutional, even though we might like the policy outcomes, which is, again, where you have a a desire to be consistent, because when you're consistent, ultimately, you will have more freedom. So I asked myself when I first heard of this, I remember candidate Trump saying that he supports the Second Amendment and the laws that we already have. And he also favored this. Now, the person that put forth this legislation is Richard Hudson, a Republican out of North Carolina. And when you put forth the bill, you have a constitutional statement when you put a bill forth. And the constitutional authority statement here essentially says The Second Amendment is good enough. And again, this is what happens when we don't understand the fact. This is, you know, absolutely uncontestable that the Second Amendment and the Bill of Rights are merely a reaffirmation that certain areas were never delegated to the general government. So they're really a negative. There's no grant or protection of certain rights. It's a restriction of the general government. So. This is what happens. I get a call from the NRA because I was a member. I was also an NRA certified firearms instructor where they called me and said, we are fighting Congress for any kind of gun control bills. And we're also working with them. I said, there's where you lose me. Mm. <laughs> there's where you lose me. The NRA was also backing the case where the, the Second Amendment was incorporated against the states, which is why we're getting so many of the state's firearms laws, again, booted up into federal court. Again, now the federal government has authority over an area in which they were never intended to. So here's what happens now. We have an idea that, you know, it's not really fair. Some people can bring their firearms to different states. If you have uh, a Utah firearms concealed carry permit, you can't 
can't take it to California. By golly, that's just not fair. So we're going to have the federal government come in and protect your rights. Also, you mentioned earlier, wouldn't the federal government be the, the proper venue for protecting our rights more so from the state? And my statement to that is, is there a special colony where, you know, people that are working in the federal government come from? Are they fed a certain, you know, jelly like like bees in a hive? <laughs> That, you know, somehow these people are morally superior to the rest of us. If anything, they proved the opposite. I did a show on our on our network, Cerberus Radio Network, about an article from the burning platform called Mr. Sociopath Goes to Washington. These are the last people we want to, you know, delegate more rights to, particularly those never intended under the Constitution as ratified. So getting back to this, you have to ask yourself, is this something we want the federal government having authority over. And I submit to you, if this were to ever pass, you have to look at the different standards for issuing these permits, whether it be a may issue state where it's subject to the uh, discretion of the local law enforcement officer where you live, like I was in California, Sheriff Lori Smith had a policy, not given any of them. So, or Utah, if you are a law-abiding citizen, they shall issue you a permit. California is going to take this to federal court and say, we don't want people that don't have the testing standards that we do over here in California. And guess what? California citizens vote these representatives into office. So we're going to get a national standard that reflects what we say due to inconsistency of state opinions or state holdings. We're going to have a top down law that's going to affect everybody in every state. Look for magazine restrictions, look for types of caliber restrictions and look for testing restrictions. In California, you have to test and pay for every single firearm that you want covered by that permit. What if you bring one that's not on there by mistake? What did I say? If you don't do it right, you're in prison. Well, you you nail it. Absolutely. When you talk about the very first question out of our mouths, when someone proposes, hey, here's a solution is, does the general government have the authority to enact such a law? Secondly, um, the, the purpose of these laws should be to limit our interactions with government. In other words, to, to get government off of our backs as firearms owners and to let it to put its effort and its attention somewhere more productive. Uh, not so many years ago, Utah had uh, a law. I, I'm trying to remember if it was SB 76 or HB 76, but it was a a, a, a law that, that would have allowed concealed carry, but or I'm sorry, it would have allowed either concealed or open carry without a permit. But if you didn't have a permit, you were required to have the firearm, at least two actions from firing. And, and the downside of that law, people were like, yeah, yeah, finally, you know, this is a step in the right direction. And I'm thinking to myself, but this means that if a cop sees you open carrying, he's more likely to stop you to check. Are you in compliance with that two actions away from firing? In other words, you just brought him into your life more rather than him realizing, hey, the guy's not in, involved in any criminal activity. So what if he's open carrying? And I think there was a response to that. I believe probably one of the only things that I've ever approved of Herbert doing was there was a law that came subsequent that said, look, if you are open carrying and your firearm is holstered and there is no other, you know, abnormal or threatening behavior, police cannot harass you for that. But you're absolutely correct. I mean, a police officer could come up and say, hey, do you have a permit for that? Even if they know 
they can't ask you that and it's not lawful, you're still putting yourself in that position. And I, I was really hoping that you could have permitless carry here in Utah. But as we know, just like with the civil asset forfeiture reform that got the thumbs down, Herbert's just, you know, the the a, a puppet of law enforcement here in Utah, which is unfortunate. But getting back to the, the Second Amendment here with um, whether or not the firearms could be within the purview of the general government, St. George Tucker wrote a commentary on the Constitution. And what he said here was wherever standing armies are kept up and when the rights of the people to keep and bear arms is under any color or pretext whatsoever prohibited liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. And I submit to you, you grant this power to Washington, D.C., and they will limit this. Well, you would think we would have learned by now. But I see a lot of really well-intentioned gun owners who are just, you know, chomping at the bit. Now, you, you call it permitless carry. I've, I'm afraid I've fallen into the trap of saying, well, it's constitutional carry because, you know, we've got the constitutional right. I like your approach better. Are there any states that really, truly have a permitless carry system and, you know, therefore a track record that they could look at to say, look, we didn't devolve into the dark ages because we, we don't stop and hassle people for carrying a firearm, either openly or concealed? I don't remember offhand how many there are, but there are quite a few states where you can have permitless carry. And even in Wyoming, I can open carry without being a resident there. So um, I believe also in Arizona, as an out-of-state non-resident, I could go in there and conceal carry as well. What I want people to understand is the areas, the states particularly, that have the most draconian gun laws, it's no coincidence that they have the most gun violence, and they just seem to keep doubling down and having more firearms restrictions. Well, and you would think that would teach us something, too. All right, we're down to a couple minutes here before, before we got to wrap things up. Um, any other takeaways? I know there's a ton going on here uh, as, as you look at the passing scene. What else is, is grabbing your attention these days? Well, I think what I'm really focusing on these days is incorporation. That's been the common denominator of all the topics we talked about here. And that's the means by which the federal judiciary has, and again, and, and by a means never intended, according to the Constitution as ratified, have made themselves the ultimate arbiter of what is social policy. Again, this goes back to the 14th Amendment, which was also never legally ratified. But the 39th Congress never proposed that this was going to mean that the Bill of Rights was going to apply to the states. But in 1925, a case called Gitlow versus New York found this power, and that's the means by which they have systematically dismantled our federal republic into one united state where all laws are ultimately decided by nine politically connected lawyers in black dresses. <laughs> well... I actually, I think I have some homework to do. Uh, what do you recommend? If I want to better understand incorporation, better understand the impact the 14th Amendment has had, uh, where do I start? You obviously have some great articles. Let's, let's, uh, let's plug your website. Uh, SuzanneCSherman.com. And if you order some of the books I have under suggested reading, that will help me out with my Amazon affiliate link. Huge book on that topic. Again, I mentioned Dave Benner's book on the, on the 14th Amendment. Kevin Goodsman explains it very well in the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. Dave Benner's book also, um, the, the um, Compact of the Republic, explains that, you know, we had sovereign and independent states come together for a limited purpose. So if you go into this background, and my article's on the 10th Amendment Center. Okay, thank you, Suzanne Sherman. This is The Joe Carey Show.
timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.